Hello, welcome to the podcast. What a time that we find ourselves in right now. Life as we know it, the routine, the usual worries and the casual interactions that we have, which arise from everyday life. The struggling, the striving, the motivations that we all have have well and truly been halted right now. A different kind of mission has landed on our doorstep. The mission has been given to us for all of us to stay at home and for us to do what we can from here. And this has changed people's lives, especially for the short term. And who knows, bigger picture, perspective may come in to us in this period and lives could change for the long term too. We have a new situation now for the foreseeable future. It's bringing new challenges and things that we quite frankly are not used to. Our message at Mantality is to cultivate, even during times of adversity, Sometimes, to pick up the courage to do that, you need to be vulnerable first and understand the situation and understand what you're dealing with. Sometimes you've got to be honest with how you're feeling and you've got to work out what you can control and what you cannot control. And then we can grow from there. What do we do with the worries that we have? What do we do with a low confidence right now? And what are we doing when our working life is everything that we leaned upon for our identity and our self-esteem? What do we do when we cannot have physical contact with people, when we cannot socialise and visit loved ones as usual? Some of the things that we can do is to understand why we are taking these steps and to increase our own autonomy. We can zone in on our own resilience and rely upon the people that we can re-realise that are our support network. But there have to be some steps first, as we discovered from top sports psychiatrist Alan Johnston. Alan is a sports psychiatrist and has been employed by the English Institute of Sport as sports psychiatrist to the mental health expert panel, supporting our great Britain Olympic and Paralympic Olympic athletes in preparation for the Tokyo Olympic Games 2020. Alan certainly has his hands full right now, specifically with the Olympic Games being postponed until the summer of next year. And we talk a little bit about the challenges that have arisen out of the blue from the situation for some of the top athletes in the world. The Bradford Bulls employed Alan as the world's first rugby league sports psychiatrist in 2012. He now works with athletes across a range of sports, dance and performance disciplines. He also works with the LMA, looking after football managers mental health from across the UK. We talk about why it's such a big deal to stay at home, from our viewpoint mentally, but also for the good of everyone. We talk about the men and masculine identity, the breadwinner identity, how that could have been affected, and also how athletes sit with this position that we're all in now. We talk about Alan's routine, we talk about his own mental health and the steps he's had to take, more or less taking his own advice in this scenario for what's going on right now. Alan speaks about his biggest influences in the sporting world and talks about how the NHS has motivated him to. I throw in a little bit about ego and my interest in Eastern spirituality and gain how Alan sees this topic and how it fits in with the practicality of psychiatry. But here is the important stuff and the stuff that you should all be here for because Alan has agreed to share a lot of the information which athletes use in times of uncertainty like this now and to improve resilience, their motivation and focus on what they need to do in times of struggle or in times of improving performance. But here's the important bit too. Alan has agreed to share a lot of the information and models which athletes use in times of uncertainty and to improve resilience, their motivation and focus on what they need to do. The athletes use these in times of struggle or in times of improving high performance. 
we dissect resilience and we look at four different models that you will be able to sit down with and do yourself in this time or to use in the future too. This is extremely, extremely valuable. It's tried and tested and it needs to be part of your toolkit going forward. It's an easy download. Alan talks through these different models and we're going to provide the worksheets and tips at mentalitymagazine.com forward slash coronavirus. Head there guys to download the stuff that you need. You'll find the specific video explanation on there and you'll find the worksheets there too, all for free. Please share this with people. It is something that is physical and tangible that you'll be able to share with friends and anyone who is in need of support. Improve your resilience, check in with yourself for how you are now before starting and see how much it improves you after a couple of weeks. I'm sure there will be some improvement there. I'm really, really made up that Alan's teamed up with us to put this out there and I really, really hope that it helps a lot of people. Go beyond stigma and look after yourself. Go to mentalitymagazine.com forward slash coronavirus. Control what you can and carry on cultivating. Enjoy the pod, guys. Good to have you, Alan. Good to have you on the podcast, pal. How are you doing? Thanks, for, yeah, how are you doing, first and foremost, with uh, all the well, all the chaos and, and, and the uncertainty and unprecedented times going going on? Well, it's definitely a bit different, isn't it? So, uh, so yeah, thanks for having me on again. It's lovely to uh, be back talking to you. And, uh, yeah, these are very strange times, aren't they, for all of us? And we're all having to adapt and adjust to this new normal. Um, I know we're going to maybe cover a few parts of this today, but there's definitely just a change to our routine, a change to our social contact. Uh, and there were some positive things maybe to take out of it. People are slowing down a bit. There's less nitrous oxide in the atmosphere. There's some positives to take out of it, but um, but definitely challenging times. Yeah, and 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 what would your specific lockdown experience what look like? What what in specific is that for? You know, uh, a sports psychiatrist and and with all the roles and jobs that you've got to do. Yeah, that, so it's probably quite. I guess just to fill people in, um, who's not on the first one, um, if you could state the sort of roles and jobs that you've been doing and and a case how you've been juggling that. With, with the case of what's going on now too. Yeah, sure. So so I'm Alan Johnston. Um, I'm a doctor of psychiatry, so I'm a consultant psychiatrist in NHS, which means I'm a doctor of mental health. And uh, I have a few different roles, mostly in sport nowadays. Uh, so, uh, so as you know, I, I work with the English Institute of Sport. So I look after the mental health of all the Olympic and Paralympic athletes. And as you'll be aware, with Tokyo 2020 being delayed for a year, there's a lot of adjustment there. Uh, I work uh, specifically in, in football. So I work with the League Managers Association, looking after the mental health of the managers in the Premier League and the English Football Leagues. So really often there, it's often helping people to help others. It's helping the coaches, the managers, their squads. And in football, I've been on lockdown for just a little bit longer than the rest of it. It's, it's just over four weeks now for the footballers. Um, I have a few different roles. I, I work with the State of Mind Charity. We've, we've been putting out some infographics and some guidance around sleep and resilience. Uh, I work with the Sports Chaplains in UK uh, charity. And, uh, and then specifically with Burnley, all of the uh, Burnley FC footballers in the first team, 23s and 18s, they're all under my care as well. Yeah. So I get to looking after specific individuals. So, uh, so for me, there's been quite a lot of changes. Um, when the... Uh, Games was cancelled and postponed. You know that was that was a busy week. It's been interesting to follow that over the next few weeks as people adjust to that, and it affects different people in different ways. Um, personally, I'm doing a lot more things by FaceTime now. Like uh, you and I, last time we met, we were 
in person, won't we? Mm-hmm. But yeah. we're sensitively social distancing today. That's right. So, uh, so I'm doing a lot more by FaceTime. But there are still some people who uh, want to or need to see me in person, people with um, severe mental illness, people who are very depressed or even suicidal. And I'm still wanting to prioritise those people for face-to-face care wherever possible. Yeah, for sure. So the dynamic of how you're working, I guess, has changed, but you're still seeing the same volume of people and same, same essential. That's essential, if anything, um, if there ever is essential need to to see people and, and work with people too. Yeah, I'd say I'm busy. I'm slightly busier than average. Um, maybe we're getting to talk about it, but adjustment or adjustment disorder is basically the process by which we all adapt and adjust to a new piece of news, a new stress, and of course, coronavirus fits into that that model. So as people are adjusting, there's a whole range of responses to that from people who actually are benefiting from that. And I can explain detail is helpful to people who are really struggling with it and everybody in between. But I would say overall, I'm a bit busier, but working in a different way. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, we, we could talk about that sort of adjustment. Um, everyone's under the same adjustment right now. Um, and we could sort of speak of, of, the positives that, that I know you mentioned and alluded to before, the positives of that adjustment adjustment disorder, but also what, what could some of the, the negatives be just while we're on that topic? Yeah, so a lot of it's really, it's quite straightforward to understand that you don't need to be a psychiatrist really. If, if you think about the Olympic athletes that I'm seeing, so uh, these people have been preparing and basically planning for a big event, the biggest event in their sporting lives um, since the end of Rio in 2016. And uh, all of their lives, all of their plans have been based around that. So I'm seeing triathletes who were planning to get married or planning to have a family based around August 2020. Oh, yeah. People who are hoping to stretch their career, maybe gymnasts who typically retire in their teens or 20s, hoping to stretch their career just for this extra year to get to 2020. And 2021 is a big stretch. So I'm seeing people who are really having to adapt and adjust their plans, their relationships, their uh, you know, family plans, etc. There's um, there's a group of people who would who are struggling more or less with that. I guess there's something called the stress vulnerability model, which basically means we all have our unique genetics and environment, and that means that the way we appraise a challenge is part of resilience. The way we meet a challenge uh, depends on our own vulnerabilities, our own triggers, our own stresses, and our strengths. And so, for some people, they're approaching it differently to others. But some people's circumstances are different. I'm seeing some athletes who have um, you know, major physical illness. Uh, I'm seeing a swimmer who has a, a severe shoulder injury. And for this person, it's, it's quite a relief that the Games has been delayed for a year. It gives this person much longer to recover. Um, for other people, they might not make the next Games. They might not be selected. They might not be funded for another year. And so um, really, it's, it's varied by the person, their circumstances, and by their own stress vulnerability and, and strength yeah i mean in that in that specific um group of athletes especially heading for the olympics everyone's under the same restrictions now on the same sort of protocol but everyone's got i guess everyone's got a different circumstance and different result from that from those um which is is really interesting and i guess we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that alan too and um for for more of the, the general sort of population um athletes as well considered uh we could talk a bit about that later but why is it such a big deal um, for us to stay at home? You know, where's where's the challenge in that? And um, I guess you could you can answer that. And and why is the sort of restriction on socialising the social uh, the sort of restriction on human contact um, 
where's what lies underneath that obstacle if, if that makes sense yeah that's a really good question i would i mean there's a lot there's a lot in that there's a lot to answer so i would start by just considering really our normal routine our normal constructs the way we normally go about um life so of course we're social animals aren't we since uh since if you believe in evolution, since we fell out of the trees six million years ago, we've been hunting in packs and we're working in social ways. Uh, humans have developed complex communication strategies and nuances that other species don't have. And so we're essentially a social animal and we work by cooperation. And a lot of the most important things in life, you know, uh, friendship, mateship, uh, love, kindness, these are all social constructs. And so, of course, it's completely alien for, you know, half of the planet to be at home now. And there will be major effects of, of that um, economically, socially, and for our mental and, and physical health. So these are to completely unprecedented times. It's probably worth reflecting on why we're doing this. Uh, so, of course, it's uh, whilst it's challenging and it's difficult, it's also really important. Um, there'll be, be there, there are reasons why the government are asking us to socially distance and to now to uh, you know to isolate ourselves at home um and that's about protecting lives isn't it that the slogans that you hear that you hear boris say uh, yeah. that's that's real stuff that's that's not nonsense so we're, we're doing that for a really important reason and it's very hard it's much harder for some people i'm seeing some of my paralympic athletes have severe conditions like cerebral palsy or multiple sclerosis and so they're in this group that are shielded and must stay at home virtually alone for 12 weeks um, but there's a really important reason behind that. And if you want to have a bit of a think about that, I was, I was thinking about that concept of start with why that we considered before. So your why, your kind of inner values, your inner beliefs. And whilst we may have asked, you know, why do I want to be a doctor? Why do you want to be a rugby player? We could apply start with why to um, lockdown. So essentially start with why, as a startwithwhy.com, if people want to look into that more. There are essentially four questions. Uh, why am I doing this? So why am I doing lockdown? Why did I start? Why haven't I quit? And, um, and you know, what do I bring to this? Or, or why is this needed? Um, and if you can really examine really why you're doing this, that might help because autonomy is a really important concept. The fact that we're doing this out of our own free will. You could today break the rules and you could leave the house and you could go and see a friend and plenty of premiership footballers have. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that might not be the right thing to do. And if you can decide that you want to isolate through your own choice, through your own autonomy, and you can work out why you're doing this, then that might be really important for your mental health um, by boosting your autonomy and your choice. Is for that, example, sorry, yeah, no, just, just, just very quickly, just for example, yeah. you may be self-isolating to protect elderly people in your neighborhood. Yeah. You may be self-isolating to protect your family that have chronic conditions. There might be really important values behind why you're doing what you're doing. Is that is that so you're clear on on your intentions for why rather than sort of I guess I guess constantly questioning it and constantly thinking about maybe going out to to see a friend maybe going out to socialize maybe doing something a little bit sneaky does it sort of eradicate those thoughts because you've sat down you've wrote the intentions down and, and you understand it yourself yes I think it helps with that so we've all been told to self-isolate and of course that's that's sort of it we've been dictated to in that sense haven't we and different countries have different approaches and some places we're being fined some police forces are taking more or less assertive approaches to enforcing that there are new laws um 
But in a sense, I think this, I guess it's self-actualization. It's sort of above the law. It's thinking about why do you want to do this? What motivates you to do this? Um, and there might be elderly people in your, in, in, thinking about your listeners, there might be elderly people in their neighborhoods. There might be relatives who have chronic conditions. Um, there might be people who are vulnerable to this who don't know they're vulnerable to it, people who are younger but have an underlying condition that they don't yet know about. And, and we're probably self-isolating for those people and also to make sure that the capacity of our NHS, the number of ventilators, beds, PPE, that we don't exceed that. And so, yeah, I would say behind that is also come back to us being social animals. If we're doing this for other people, if we're doing it out of kindness and out of altruism, then um, that's also good for our mental health. You have every right to feel good about yourself if you're working for other people. Yeah, yeah. It kind kind of links in. It's sort of a, a paradoxical way, I guess, isn't it? You're not you're not going to see everyone, but you you're doing it for everyone else, and and so that everyone has a as a fighting chance against this. Um, and, and and off the back of that, really, Alan, I guess uh, we, you could ask, and and there's so much uncertainty around salaries, uncertainty around, you know, you know. Pay, pay cuts and um, and how how this is affecting the household really. Um, in that, there's there's sort of could talk a little bit about the sort of masculine identity and and, and men um, how they play play a role. I guess I don't know whether it's a sort of a, a tradition or a stereotype that that, that the man goes out, you know, is, is sort of the breadwinner or goes and, and and makes the money to in order for his family to survive, but. Is it is it an instance where a male could feel sort of powerless in in this in this scenario, and um, how does that affect what their setup or what their role is within the family, and, and what's the best way to attack that? Yeah, great question. So, so I would say let's let's start with everyone with the whole population. So, male, female, old, young, children, adult. We'll all be adjusting to this change, won't we? We'll all be um, uh, we're all under a certain amount of threat. Yeah, this is what's called a threat-based system. So there's, there's certainly a threat to ourselves, to our health, maybe to our family, by uh, coronavirus. And yeah. so we'll all be adjusting, going to the process of adjusting to, adapting to, getting used to, and eventually hopefully accepting um, the degree of uncertainty that we're having to live with, the, um, the processes that we're having to go through, the changes to our lives. So that would affect everyone. And each person will be affected differently depending on their stress vulnerability, which means their combination of strengths and vulnerabilities. <clears throat> and I would say within that, each person is quite unique, but there probably are some generalizations. So it would be true to say that a lot of men would see themselves as a provider, as a breadwinner. Uh, of course, some women would see themselves like that too. Yeah. So a lot of people would see themselves as like that. And it, it may be because we know that men... Um, are at risk of some mental health problems, differently to women at greater different rates. And we know that men die by suicide, unfortunately. Men die by suicide at greater rates, three times the rate of women. So within that statistic, there might be some important factors around identity. Um, and you mentioned sort of breadwinning or, you know, being a provider. So I would say, yes, a lot of men would see themselves like that. And with coronavirus having an economic impact, um, that could affect all of our identities, particularly those of us that see ourselves as breadwinners or providers, if there's a threat to our ability to do that role, a threat to our wage, our structure. I know that applies to rugby league players and athletes, as well as you know other groups of societies, other people. So I would say identity is really important. I work a lot with people on athlete identity, and if, if we've got time, I might mention 
in a model here that I call self-esteem foundations. Yeah. Would that be okay? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, so I work a lot with people on their identity. A lot of athletes um, very heavily lean upon their athletic identity for their self-esteem. So what do I mean by that? Um, I think of a, a self-esteem a bit like a, bit like a house. Um, a house has four corners, four strong pillars. It has firm foundations on which we build the walls and the roof. But a lot of athletes would lean very heavily on one factor, their athletic identity, which means when they're running fast, passing well, kicking goals, throwing, jumping well, they feel good about themselves. And when that isn't going so well, they don't feel good about themselves. And perhaps that leaves the athlete vulnerable because they've placed too much emphasis on just one aspect, their athletic identity. How well is their sport going? And so I ask athletes to try to diversify their foundations for their self-esteem to find more reasons to feel good about themselves. So if you don't mind, if we take you as an example, yeah. you, um, if you lent too heavily on just one factor, yourself as a rugby league player, then if we looked at Leeds over the last five years, there have been ups and downs, haven't there, in form, yeah. league position, uh, with injury, etc. And if you lent too heavily just on one factor, your self-esteem would be like that roller coaster. You, it would, there would be highs and lows. Whereas if you were able to lean on other aspects of yourself, yourself the podcast guy, yourself the charity guy, yourself the entrepreneur, uh, if if we thought about you as a as a son, as a brother, as a friend, as a neighbour, if you find other things that are important to you that you can base your self-esteem on, then when that when that one area isn't working so well. You have other aspects by which you can measure yourself. You can be a good son because you phone your mum, a good brother because you support your sister, etc. a good yeah. neighbour. Yeah. And so I ask athletes to try and sort of, I, I draw a house for them when we draw the four corners of the house and I ask them to find other foundations for self-esteem and other ways of measuring that. And that might be relevant for everyone now in coronavirus times because it might be hard for us to fulfil our male identity or our breadwinning identity or our work identity. But it's still possible to be a great neighbor, a great daughter, a great mother, a great father, a great husband or wife, etc. And so I'd encourage people to consider other aspects of their life that they can that they can measure, that they can um, uh, focus on in order to keep our self-esteem positive at these these challenging times. And and would that be could that be an exercise of doing that, as you say, drawing out that house um, and and sort of labeling this so you you as you say the the, the role of going to work as, as, as for many people been eradicated so is it worth labeling that house a structure of the house with different things it might be something that they might want to try that they did when they were younger um but they want to experiment with um they might want to 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 sort of develop the relationship with the daughter and and is that something that's it's good to sit down with and, and sort of map that out if you like very much so. So I've, I've. This is not one I've made earlier. I've just drawn a very badly drawn picture. But if I could, I would start with your self-esteem house, and then I would think about what you base that on. Uh, we, we would allow you to continue to have one corner, which is based on rugby league. You mm-hmm. know, and you would measure yourself by maybe your role as a captain, uh, tackles per match, um, communication within the group, for example. But then we would want you to have other areas by which you measure yourself. Is there yourself the son, yourself the brother, yourself the mentality um, entrepreneur? And we want you to find other ways of measuring yourself by that. So as a as a son, how might you measure yourself? Can you think of a couple of ways in which you would be a good son? Um, I, I reckon you'd, you'd want to connect connect with your, your mum and dad um, and you'd, you'd want to make sure they're all right. I guess in this instance, making sure that 
you know, as them they're a, a vulnerable sort of age in, in this instance that they're following the guidelines and you're checking in with them and restricting yourself as well to to like we say earlier in the chat, um, social beings. But and and you want to see your mum and dad, you want to go and see them. But paradoxically, you've got to stay away and connect in a a FaceTime sort of way rather than physical. Um, and Perfect. That can worsen it. So we're starting to sort of build your self-esteem house here. So we've got uh, you want to connect with them. You want them to follow the guidance of social distancing. And so you could, again, think of, of smart goals, if you remember, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant goals. So in terms of connecting with your mom and dad, you just create a rule that you've decided makes you a good son. So I phone my mom once a week. We text every other day. And that's a measurable way by which you can chart whether you're working on this important value to you, yourself as a son. And so, yeah, I'd encourage people to diversify the source of the self-esteem, find measurable ways or smart goals by which they can measure their progress in that regard as a son, as a neighbor. And, and to, yeah, to work on these other things, it might be that rugby league is going to take a bit of a backseat whilst these other areas of your life take more prominence. Yeah. Um, then there'll be other aspects. Maybe there are aspects of rugby league that you need to keep up to date with fitness. Could you use this time to watch video, to study other loose forwards, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, I would say you can definitely keep one corner as your male identity or athlete identity we want you to have a diverse range of supports. Brilliant, brilliant, Alan. Um, and I'm just thinking in terms of, of speaking specifically with coronavirus. Um, you've mentioned the start with why. Um, you've mentioned the sort of self-esteem house. Um, is there any, of, any other things that you'd throw in there that people should bear in mind? Uh, I know we spoke a bit about limiting uh, the amount of news source that you're taking in on coronavirus. Uh, which is heavily an important one, um, and 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 any stuff alongside that that you can that you can think of. Yeah, if we've got time, I've got two more thoughts around that. So, um, so yeah, we spoke a bit about the amount of news that you need to get, and that came from an infographic that I made with the Burnley Club doctors uh, that went to all of our Burnley FC players. I wanted to give them general advice around health, exercise, nutrition, but also give some advice about their routine and their schedule. Yeah. So I've called that mirror schedule. So I've been asking athletes and others to, to try to mirror their previous schedule, which, by which I mean to try and get the best bits of their previous schedule. So I've asked people to write out their usual routine, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, etc., a.m. and p.m. Yep. Let's just take an example of a, of a rugby league player. So if you went through your average sort of Monday, I guess we'd say you get up at a certain time, breakfast, maybe video review from the weekend's match, maybe some gym, some outdoor skills on the grass, and then you go for a coffee with your, with, with your mates. Yeah. Let's say that's your yeah. day. I want us to make sure that in your new schedule, in your like coronavirus schedule, if you like, that we're mirroring and we're capturing the best bits of that schedule, even when we're improving upon them. So some bits will be easy to recreate. You can decide when you wake up and what you have for breakfast. But the social side of what you do when you meet with the other players, you need to be inventive about that. Are you having Zoom meetings? Are you having FaceTime one-to-ones in the same way you have one-to-ones with people? Can you get a coffee and go for a coffee with a friend just from your own kitchen? Yeah. Um, is there a way of which you can do video analysis just in a different way? And we can apply that to just the general population too to try and capture the best bits of their schedule. And when I've been asking people to do this over the last few weeks, sometimes the things they miss out – uh, on finding important me time, kind of uh, you know one time. 
So when people, let's say our daily commute, not always fun, sometimes stressful, but it can provide an important sort of me time. As people drive to work for an hour or get on the train, they might listen to a podcast. They might get some fresh air and exercise and sunshine as they walk to the train station. And so obviously that could be missing as we're sitting in our kitchens checking our emails. Yeah, that's true. And so I'm asking people to kind of mirror that, that me time. Could they still listen to a podcast for half an hour in the morning? I've got one athlete who really bought into that, and he's going. He's just going to go and sit in his car for half an hour in the morning. He's not driving anywhere, but he's going to sit <laughs> yeah. and listen to. Uh, he's going to listen to XFM because yeah. he wants to rock out for half an hour in the morning like he normally does. Like it, yeah. Um, you should walk. You should walk around the park though instead of sitting in a car. I reckon. You'd like, <laughs> walk. You'd like going your walk. <laughs> <laughs> Tell him that. That's true. But try and I'll pass that on. <laughs> but trying to. You should try and mirror the context that you have. So if there's someone who you normally just say a quick hi to, maybe text is fine. But if there's someone who you normally have a one-to-one with, a friend at, at Kirkstall or, for me, a, a medical colleague, I should probably try and FaceTime them or Zoom them because I normally have that degree of contact. And the thinking behind this is, number one, we've had to move out of our old schedule. And the further out we move, when reality kicks back in, we'll have further to come back. Uh, number, number two, there might be some really important aspects of your previous schedule, and some of which are well thought out. You know, there's a reason why you have a protein shake after the gym, uh, but some of which you don't really know why you do it, but it's important, like the me time that you get for half an hour on the train in the morning, or the, the social chat at the office, or um, the, the intellectual side of rugby, so the thinking side of rugby. How could you recreate that when you're not at the training ground? Could, is there something else intellectual you can do or is it something about video analysis or reviewing a match or thinking tactically about defensive shape? So your mirror schedule is one. Try to recreate the best bits of your previous schedule and find the right proportions of time, me time, social time, thinking time, active time. So if you can mirror your previous schedule, you probably capture the best bits of what you used to do and keep in the same sort of habits. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's, Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes sense, mate. Um, it's probably a good segue into into what you're, how you're active um, with with your mental health, Alan, and and what routine, what routines you put yourself in because you know you're giving us all this brilliant advice on corona specific stuff. But um, what does a top sports psychiatrist do? For, for I himself. don't know. I'll ask him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Let us know when when he, when he tells you. Um, I get back. Where's my phone? <laughs> but yeah, because we can because I can't get through to him. I'll we'll ask you. Um, ask me. Yeah. So, that is a good question. That's a fair question. Um, so I would say I've been following my own advice to certain degrees. Um, so I have been thinking about my my stress. Uh, making sure I talk to other people. So I'm lucky I've got an understanding wife uh, who is herself a GP and, you know, is busy herself. But I've been talking to people I trust and who I love and who I can, you know, speak to. I've been keeping an eye on my sleep, my my diet. It's easy to fall out of that routine. A lot of people will be going to bed later, waking up later. And it's good to have a break. It's good to have a holiday from your usual routine. But I also wanted to get back into my usual sleep sort of patterns. So I've been keeping an eye on my sleep. Sleep is important. We know it's linked to serotonin, melatonin, your mood. Um, I, have an exercise. I have been quite worried. I'll be honest, I've been quite worried about coronavirus at times. Um, I've got three kids and um, my son had a temperature and a cough and we are all self-isolated now three weeks ago. Uh, so that was a worrying time for me. Uh, and so I applied one of the strategies that we've spoke about before, 
something called accept and control controllables. So I could talk you through that if that would be helpful. Yeah, I think I think that would be good. It'd be helpful for people. Yeah. Basically, I wrote that out myself. Accept and control controllables is is a model that um, I've developed, and it's based on two um, types of therapy: compassion focused therapy and CBT, which is a practical kind of solution focused therapy. So, in accept and control controllables, there's basically three questions. Um, the first question is, how do I feel? So I wrote out how I feel. I feel really worried. I'm concerned about my son. Um, I hope he doesn't get poorly, et cetera, et cetera. You know? And I, I wrote out really how I, how I feel, my worries about it. And that's cathartic, isn't it? Writing out your feelings, letting out your feelings is, is valuable. Uh, the second bit is where you basically ask yourself, is this acceptable? Can I accept how I feel? And I call those first wave feelings. So that your first feelings you have worry about coronavirus is quite normal and quite natural since caveman times we've been looking at the horizon to see where the threat's coming from and it's quite normal to to um, be doing the same to some extent to be watching the news to see what the update is so i realized that i i came to the conclusion that i can accept how i feel how i think about my son my first wave of feelings are normal and um, there can sometimes be a second wave of feelings where people say to themselves particularly men might say to themselves why am I thinking like this? I'm being soft. I'm being daft. I shouldn't think like this. And that, that second wave of feelings is usually unhelpful and unnecessary. So I decided that I could accept my worry about my son. That was quite normal and quite natural. And then in the final stage, control of controllables, I'd like a person to, and I did, I thought about what I can control and what I can't control in this situation. So, um, so the things that I can control, like, you know, my diet, my sleep, my nutrition, um, the things that I can control is looking after my son. Uh, the things that I can't control, how long is this going to take? When will lockdown end? Um, this might sound a bit morbid, but I also realized that I, I can't control when I'm going to die. I, essentially, I can't control that. But that's actually the same as it was before. I had no idea when I was going to die before, and yeah. I still have no idea. <laughs> and I realized that my own mortality is out of my control. Uh, but that's exactly as it was before coronavirus. And um, whilst it's quite normal to worry about things that are outside of our control, it's probably a waste of my time to be worrying about when I'm going to die or how long will this last. Because no matter how much I think about that, it's outside my control and there's nothing that I can do about it. Yeah. So, so I wrote myself out, I can control. Go ahead. Apart yeah. from the specific guidelines, I guess, in it and the and the right. something you can do. That's it's it's above your even above your your pay grade on, you know, being a top tech guy. <laughs> so that. yeah, the, how how long this lasts for and uh, and when lockdown ends is outside of my control. It's not worth me investing my time there. But there is a long list of stuff I can do, as you just pointed out, that I can control. Do I follow the guidance? Do I social distance? My diet, my nutrition, my contacts with the people, my reflections of myself, my self-esteem. All these things are worth me investing my time in. And so I decided to use my time more productively and try not to worry for as long about the things that were bothering me. And that, that helped me out. I would say that's, that's a helpful tool that other people could use too. Yeah. It's, um, I'll, I'll throw one at you. Like the, the sort of writing, the, uh, the writing practice of that, um, I feel like I've probably naturally been doing that um, each morning for, for the last two weeks. Because of this, this time, I've had sort of a... Um, a chance to like experiment with the sort of my morning routine and what I do each morning when I wake up because you're not you're not time restricted and you don't have to rush off to start a gym at eight am or whatever. Um, so each morning I've I've 
woke up, um, meditated for 20 minutes, um, which has been really good. And then straight after that, I'll do three morning purges, um, just journaling, anything that comes to my head, mm. which um, which is sort of taken from. So Natalie's a, a contemporary dancer and, and she does... Um, or she has done in the past something called the artist way. And I think something taken from that is just every morning, three pages, um, write whatever you're thinking. Um, and I think the practice of that, I think it stops those, you know, worries or anxieties or um, thoughts that might be knocking around. Um, I've heard the term um, caging the monkey mind um, for why it might be good as well. Um, but I feel mm. like that does that does help it. And I guess it's, it's similar to... Um, what you were saying there, actually writing down, seeing it, getting it out there, understanding it. Is is there something behind that? Um, I mean, straight after that, I'll I'll do another breathing technique and I'll get in a cold shower for three minutes. That that certainly wakes you up and gets you ready for the day. But in specific on the on the the morning pages, um, I'd also do a page at night too. But um, wondering what the what the the benefit of that could be, especially in times like this. Yeah, okay, that's a really good question. I would say there's lots of theory behind that. So uh, Freud himself, Sigmund Freud, would have talked about catharsis, letting out your feelings. And that's, and I would say that's a big part of what you're doing, is writing out your feelings, letting them out. People might get the same from talking to another person. If people don't want to write, people might get the same from texting or, or contacting someone they trust. A lot of people talk to their dogs. So a lot of people find that their dogs are great listeners. And dogs can teach us a lot about listening because they don't answer back. <laughs> They're always pleased to see you. They very rarely interrupt to say anything that's uh, that's contrary to what you're thinking. A lot of people talk to their dogs because dogs are wonderful listeners. If you want to listen well, look at how well a dog listens. Good yeah. eye contact. Always pleased to see you. So people do it in different ways. They do catharsis through different things. Uh, pet therapy, writing things out, talk, talking to someone they trust. And I would say, yeah, that's, that's definitely that's half of this model I just described, accepting and control controllables, is writing out how you feel and also accepting how you feel. So yeah. we're going through a certain degree of uncertainty now. It's very unsettling. It's changed our routine. But we will have to, well, we don't have to, but it might be helpful to accept a certain amount of uncertainty to say, look, things are uncertain. It is worrying. And that, that's okay. It's not nice, but it's okay. And I can cope with a certain amount of uncertainty. Um, and I'm going to have to accept a certain amount of uncertainty because I can't spend all day watching 24-hour news and all day worrying about, am I going to get infected? Or I can take hold of that by realizing the aspects that I can't control. So yeah, in this model, writing out how you feel, considering how you can accept that. Acceptance is from a type of therapy called compassion-focused therapy or something called acceptance and commitment therapy or third-wave CBT there's all different types of therapies, but acceptance is a big part of that, accepting how you feel, accepting yourself. And then working out the can and can't controls, what, what is worth investing my time in, the can controls, and what isn't. And you can apply that to uh, ACL injury or a divorce or coronavirus or buying a house or anything that needs adjustment or, or is complex. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And um, obviously, you've 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 done quite a bit, Alan, uh, in the sporting world. Um, I, w- I was just wanting to to pick out what what some of the the biggest influences are for you, and and sort of a, a good question to ask because I just wrote um, something that we do called the My Mentality um, on the Mentality Instagram, and and that's basically just putting about two hundred and fifty words out um, about 
your it could be your story, your scenario that you're in now, your thoughts on mental health, your thoughts on how you bettered mental health and how have you overcome stuff. Um, I've wrote something about my sister who who I alluded to saying that athletes are made into heroes and um, you know people come to watch and, and sort of share the victories and the journeys with them. Um, but sort of I've. I've put in this this post that my sister is um, probably the real hero, uh, especially uh, at this time now because she's on the front line down in Kingston um, looking after people with coronavirus and, and seeing everything that's going on. Um, so that's sort of the, 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 the link that I wanted to, to put to you and then, but then also ask you some of your biggest influences in NHS but also in sport um, and how do they measure up and how they influence you in, in your work? Okay. Well, I would say I would start with the NHS. So um, so if I can just explain a bit about sports psychiatry, there are very few sports psychiatrists in the country, there are perhaps four or five of us. Uh, people will be more familiar with uh, sports psychology uh, and sports psychology is often around a performance base. How do we get better performance out of our athletes? But sports psychiatry, the mental health of athletes, is a much more modern concept and myself and a colleague uh, started the Royal College of Psychiatry, Sports Psychiatry Group, just three and a half years ago. So it's pretty new, it's pretty fresh, and there are not many of us. So I would say because of that, a big part of my influence working in sports is the NHS, a big part of my learning. I, I qualified as a doctor in 2002. I started my training in 1997. So, so 23 years ago, I started aiming towards where I am now. And, and a massive chunk of that, both in terms of time and influence, has been the NHS. It's a wonderful organization. It's an organization I still work in. I still work in the NHS in Derbyshire. And, um, and it's a massive influence for me. It's a great place to learn and to train. And you learn by seeing people and helping people. It gives you a wonderful opportunity to help others, to help your community, your society. Um, I worked in London for a long time, and I worked around the world in different parts of South Africa and Australia. But I came back to Yorkshire because um, uh, for lots of reasons, including wanting to have a family. But part of it was that I really wanted to help people who I sort of grew up with. Yeah, so I was born and brought up in, in Murfield near Dewsbury. And, um, and I, I kind of wanted to, I wanted to help, if you like, people who I know, if that makes right. sense. Yeah, yeah. And I, I get a lot out of helping people, um, the sorts of people who I grew up with. And I came back to Yorkshire partly for that. So I would say the NHS is a massive influence on me and in my learning, in my development. If I'm allowed to, can I give you a second one? Yeah, go for it, mate. Okay. So my second one would be uh, Francis Cummings and the Bradford Bulls. So my first job in sport, I started working with State of Mind 2011. And in 2012, um, I started working with Franny at the Bradford Bulls. And I did the best part of two seasons there. Uh, until we were all sacked. <laughs> uh, <Right. laughs> and as you know, um, Bradford went through an interesting period, uh, interesting to say the least, and I sat through maybe three of their four administrations, worked with them in, in that period. And that was also a massive learning opportunity for me. And at the time, when uh, when we all lost their jobs, um, I, I found that very hard, and I found that really difficult. And as a doctor, it's quite rare that you get asked to go away and not come back. Normally, something's gone terribly wrong. Uh, if you were to ask to leave a hospital and never come back, you know, it's not been a great, uh, a great job. Um, 
And it took me a long time, and it was with the help of a lot of people, a lot of the players I was seeing, a lot of people who are now at Leeds, you know, both in the coaching and in a playing capacity, that I realised really that I really had helped people and that I'd made a difference and that my work had been good and valued by, you know, many people. Um, but that took me a long while to get over months, I would say six months of adjustment. Um, my career since then has sort of gone exponentially. And partly it was because I really, we all got sacked. So the physio went to Hull KR and the strength and conditioner went to Ulster Rugby and Franny went to Doncaster and later to Witness and the players are now spread out over Super League. And so in many ways, being sacked by Bradford was the best thing that happened to me. And that's a lifeline lesson. I've talked to you before about something called lifeline, monitoring the ups and downs of your life and what do you learn from the dips and how did you learn resilience from those periods of adversity and me being sacked to my first ever job in sport, I found a period of adversity, but it was the best uh, thing that happened to me in terms of personal learning and development. And so I would say, uh, if you want to develop, then be sacked by Bradford. It's really good for you. <laughs> <laughs> understand what real adjustment disorder is. <laughs> yeah. If yeah. you understand adjustment disorder, work for the Bradford Bulls. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. That's an interesting thing, and it brings up um, the sort of it's it's quite it's quite refreshing to have, you know, when when you ask you know what someone's biggest influence in sport, you know, someone might speak about a person, someone might speak individually about someone what they said to them, but you've obviously listed a, a big bout of adversity which you have had there that's you know in in effect helped you, which is is, is quite refreshing, and um, you know, it, I guess it does it does um, does help people to be able to do their own life graph at, at this time because it's, you know, I imagine it's it's sort of a similar scenario for a lot of people right now in, in terms of work. Um, one question as well, Alan, I, I was going to ask, and, and this might have, have happened with those sort of Bradford players and, and the people that, that have, have, have had to go through that. Um, is it easier to work with people that have, so you can imagine people at Bradford at that time really were sort of switched on and focused on mental health and, um, understanding of it and, and wanting to to make things better is it easier to work with people of that mindset you know and and where does sort of self awareness come in in into that because you know you could imagine you know people are sort of not very um, self aware in, in the way they know that's what's what's annoying them what's stressing them out what's pissing them off um, but then there might be someone on the other hand who understands this but you know there could be some and both of those sets of people there could be different opinions on where they see mental health sit in their life and in their role and their job as an athlete as a as a as a person um as a member of the nhs so it'd be interesting to know how that's changed as well over a certain amount of time so a big question big um prelude to, to your answer mate but let's let's see what we get yeah so um so you touched on something there that we, we talk about called psychological mindedness how aware is the person how self-aware are they how willing or able are they to reflect on themselves, to take lessons from difficulties, to have an aware of their own strengths and weaknesses. <clears throat> so it's worth mentioning that, yeah, it's, it, uh, working within a team, um, let's take Bradford, for example, working at Bradford was made possible by Francis Cummings. And uh, my own opinion of him is very high. And his degree of self-awareness and his interest in his staff which included me, but lots of the people, is interested in their development, their CPD, their learning. Um, his ability to self-reflect and to learn and to help others to do the same was massive for the club and massive for me. 
Um, and I would say, yeah, if you're working in a club as a, as a psychiatrist, then to have the backing of the head coach is really important um, for them to have that degree of self-awareness and interest. Definitely, yeah. Um, now, I would say on average, that has changed over time. So I would say in many ways, Franny was well ahead of the curve with his interest in that. He was learning from other groups. So um, Brendan Rodgers at Liverpool at the time had Steve Peters within the club at Liverpool FC. Um, so there were other examples of it too. But those people were ahead of their time. Um, mental health is really, uh, an awareness of mental health has really developed and come on, certainly in the last 10 years. And that's probably accelerated in the last five years. Um, years, there were anti-stigma campaigns um, in the 90s and early noughties. But it was really, I wonder if it was just, it's like turning around an oil tank. It took a long while to change. And now you see an acceleration whereby footballers go to, England footballers go to World Cups talking about their depression. Or yourself, you've described lots of adversity just before grand finals. And so I would say that having role models, having people to talk about it, uh, the Royal Family, the, the uh, Duke of Cambridge, um, having people who, uh, who would talk about mental health, who would role model that, has made a big difference and really helped the people that I see and really helped me to do my job as well. So a uh, you know, big shout out to everyone that's made a contribution, which includes a lot of sports people, but also people from the dance world. Um, mental health within, say, ballet is an increasing, people are increasingly aware of that. And in terms of public health. So, yeah, I would say um, having a certain amount of psychological awareness and psychological mindedness is really helpful. However, it's my job to get on with everybody that I see and to treat people who I see regardless of who they are or what they've done. I've provided the same care for people who are guilty of all sorts of offences. You know, people who I've worked in forensic psychiatry, whereby, you know, people have been guilty of, of murder or of other crimes, of, you know, really quite horrific crimes. Um, and it's my job really to care for these people, no matter what they've done or who they are or what their background is or how psychologically minded they are. So nowadays in sport, I have a great clinic. I start with a pop forward and then a ballet dancer and then a center forward and then a canoeist. And they might have different levels of intelligence and awareness and psychological mindedness. It's my job to work out with that person. How do I pitch this at the right level with the right amount of detail so that I can engage that person and I can gain their trust. So would the, would the role of a psychiatrist be to suggest ways from your view that you think that it'd help them um, manage a certain scenario or certain issue in their life or think about something in a certain way. Is that yeah, very much so. There's, there's obviously there's a, bit, there's a structure to it. So a psychiatrist is a doctor that's had a medical training. So a psychiatrist should be able to provide what they call a biopsychosocial model. So should be able to offer biological solutions, for example, the management of pain, the management of concussion, um, the management of mood with antidepressant medications is a third of what I do. Uh, psychological treatment strategies, understanding the person, finding the right therapeutic approach, CBT, DBT, CFT, finding the right way of engaging the person and gaining their trust, motivating and encouraging the person. And social strategies. You mentioned coronavirus affecting our ability to work, earn money, care for our family, etc. So considering the person's housing, education, finance, employment is also a big a third of what I do. And so, yeah, a psychiatrist should be able to assess and understand the person and apply biological, psychological, social treatment strategies to help the person as they see fit to work with the person to 
find out what they want to achieve and then help to help them to achieve that. Uh, just just on the back of that, it's probably more um, going off the back of um, the vulnerability and stuff you mentioned. Um, and there's a lot, there's a lot out there. I think Brené Brown. Um, don't know if you've seen much of her. She's an author and talks a lot about vulnerability and the crossover to um, strength and, and courage. Do you think that there's a, a, a line or a, um, a correlation between vulnerability and well performance and well success? I guess. Very much so, absolutely. So I would see traditionally what a, a, a doctor or psychiatrist would do would be to work on well-being. And if we kind of draw a circle here, I'd be looking at well-being. But particularly in sport, and what a sports psychologists would typically do would be to work on performance, on how well a person is able to do their job, whether you're a doctor or a league player or a teacher. Um, but of course, there's such a great relationship between well-being and performance that I uh, try to help an individual with both. Someone's feeling happy about themselves, confident, secure, they have supportive relationships, they're much likely to perform better. And if someone's performing well as a teacher, a doctor, a cleaner, a Tesco's worker, whatever they're doing, they're performing well and feeling good about themselves, they're more likely to have good well-being. And so well-being and performance, like a Venn diagram, are just completely overlapping. And it's very much my job to, to help an individual with, with both those things because they, they relate to one another so much. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, that's, that's cool, that, mate. And, and I, I wondered, we spoke a little bit about the athletes um, for um, Team GB and, and, and the sort of the come up to Tokyo, which will obviously be postponed now. Um, what's, what's the understanding be- between those and, 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 and sort of how, how are they goal specific? You know, what are they doing in terms of, of, managing the uncertainty and, and, and what goals would, would they have to put in place? Yeah. So we should probably now consider adjustments. I, I sort of described earlier, there's a spectrum of responses. So there are some people who are coping very, very well with this and some people are coping not well at all with this. And there's a whole range of a spectrum in between. So I would say of all the athletes I'm seeing, there are some people over here who are really well adapted to this. They have what might be called a challenge mindset, which touches on resilience. We can talk about resilience if we have time the way that you approach a challenge or adversity. And there's some people for whom this is good news. They have longer to get back from their shoulder injury. They have an extra year and they need to rest to recover from their injury. There's a big group of people in the middle, probably the largest group, largest constituent who are adjusting to this. They're, they're adapting and adjusting. And there's a group over here who have what's called an adjustment disorder. So F43.2 is a category of mental illness called adjustment disorder by a person is adapting to a stress, but it might be affecting their, their mood or anxiety, causing problems with their sleep or energy or motivation, they're feeling flat, or causing stress or anxiety. And for those people, uh, one model of that is, is bereavement or loss. So uh, for those of us that have lost a relative, you know, who, who are bereaved of a relative, um, we would have gone through a certain process of adjustment to that loss or that change. There's a model by, uh, by a, a female psychiatrist called Kubler Ross which is at the stages of loss, and they are uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And as we go through any adaptation, uh, it's quite often we'll go through those stages, perhaps in a mix of orders. So we might feel a sense of denial or shock. We might feel a sense of anger or frustration, a sense of questioning or bargaining, a sense of low mood or stress, and finally acceptance. So the group of people who at a slower or faster pace will be adjusting to this loss. And then there's another group of people over here who have 
uh, whose mental health has deteriorated to the stage where they have mental illness and who are really struggling with this. Their depression has got worse, their risks have got higher. Um, but basically, wherever you are on this spectrum, uh, my job is to promote positive mental health. So if your mental health is great, that's wonderful. I want to make it even greater. And if your mental health is really poor at the moment, you have mental illness, then okay, I still want to make it greater. I want to move it into the next category up. With a lot of people, you mentioned goal setting. So yeah, setting manageable goals and achievable goals um, and then achieving those is really important to us. So to have a structure or routine that allows you to set goals. Now, I'm a terrible athlete. I'm not by the sports country. I'm a terrible athlete, but um, I need to set myself some goals and some challenges. So I have a hill around the corner here and I've been running up the hill and I'm too old for Strava or that sort of thing. So I've, just been, I've been running to the next lamppost each time. And each day I try and run to the next lamppost, which may be uh, 40 yards apart. And, uh, and I've, I've done all the lampposts now and I can get to the bench at the top of the first hill. But mm. I've still got the seat at the top of the second hill that I'm aiming towards. You'll end up in Australia soon. <laughs> not that far yeah that would be a, that would be a uh, a fanatical uh, doctor that would be Australia, but the ability to set a goal and to achieve that goal and then to, to I guess to congratulate yourself to pat yourself in the back and to feel a sense of reward from that I think those endorphins that um, people talk about when they go to the gym a sense of endorphins I think that's a reward mechanism whereby the person is has achieved a goal and it could be anything. It could be dancing. It could be running. It could be cycling. It could be something intellectual. It could be you learning about a new psychological approach. That could be a goal that you set yourself and um, that you achieve. So I think goal setting is really important. Is is one for you, Alan. Um, I've actually set some goals, uh, three month goals, um, in terms of of my concussion, um, and one of them, which interplays with the idea of building new neural pathways and stuff. So I've I've, I've tried to learn juggling. I've gone to learn juggling, so I sat down and wrote goals, and it's been it's been brilliant because the sun's been out, um, and I've wrote some 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 three month goals. It's been one of them was um, to juggle for a minute. I put um, why do I want this? Because it'll show that I'm building new neural pathways in my brain, um, and and sort of progressing in a way with my brain because obviously I'm still got concussion post concussion syndrome, but it'll show that that's improving at least. Um, and then, so I brought down why I wanted to do it. And then the reward, I put a reward there as well for achieving it. And the reward was like, so I'm sat here writing this list. And I'm thinking, right, this is going to be pretty tough. This I'm crap at anything like juggling or like that. Um, so if I can do it for a minute, um, you know, I'll, I'll take Natalie out on a, on a big night out when we're all allowed to do it and spend a bit of money on a meal and some drinks after. Um, Fantastic. So, which is fantastic. But the only thing is, I did that minute juggling yesterday. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've completely misjudged misjudged the goal. The timing. Um, You're yeah. too good. I'm too good. I might, I might that's, have to that's join a circus. I might have to join a <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so the question is, what do you do when you when you're that good and and when you uh, achieve a goal too early? Um, I'm it's, not to... a problem, it's not a problem I have, but I can see it's a difficulty <laughs> yeah. you might suffer with. So, yeah. um, firstly, I would say there's all sorts of good stuff from what you've done there. So let's have a think about it. Um, as you say, a post concussion, a person might have what's called neurovestibular symptoms, balance problems, vision problems, problems with uh, with movement and proprioception. So you've set yourself a goal which is meaningful. Yeah, and that's something that uh, your listeners can do. Set a goal is meaningful for you. For you, it was about uh, assessing your concussion and progressing 
your uh, neurovestibular problems. So it, for another person, it could be being a great mum or getting out and getting some exercise. So find a goal that's meaningful for you and do that. Number two, you've, you've found measures. You've found a way of measuring it, haven't you? You've made it smart, specific and measurable. So your goal was, was it juggle for a minute? Yeah, you, a minute straight. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Number three, that's really adaptable. So, of course, you can juggle for two minutes. You can juggle in a different pattern. As it happens, I'm not a bad juggler myself. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I took up juggling when I was doing my medical school finals in 2000, my final exams in 2002. Oh. Uh, it was a great way of, of um, freeing my mind mm. from anatomy and physiology and biochemistry. Mm. So, um, so I think you've also found a task there that's quite meditative, isn't it? Yeah. Quite mindful. Sure. Um, other people might get it from, let's say, going for a drive, whereby your brain sort of switches off. If you've been driving for a while, you can drive from your corpus callosum. You don't need your cortex to think mm-hmm. about driving. We no longer have to do mirror, signal, yeah. maneuver. You just, I still do uh, that. Do not do that, man. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to do that anymore. You can, you can drive with your corpus callosum, part of the brain that has an automatic tract to your spinal cord. And when you're doing juggling, it will eventually become natural. Another way of thinking about it is muscle memory. So you juggle with muscle memory, and whilst you're juggling, your mind can wander, and you can think about all sorts of other stuff, like meditation, like diaphragmatic breathing, like driving a car. Your mind can wander to other stuff, a bit like dreaming, and your mind will cover, or daydreaming, your mind will just cover other topics of interest, other thoughts, other problems. And the bigger you get at juggling, the more natural it becomes, the more meditative it might be. So I think you're onto all sorts of good stuff there, meaningful goals, measurable it's adaptable and it's quite mindful it's quite uh, meditative and will allow you to focus on other stuff at the same time see this is this is where i've got to with it i think once you you get another thoughts come in while he's trying to juggle three balls i think that's when it's in your muscle memory like you say so that might have been that that switch in the what what did you say that the name was the part of your brain is called the corpus callosum corpus callosum so obviously my corpus callosum switched on and i'm probably quite adept at juggling now if that's switched on i guess because I'm, I'm allowed to think of other stuff so that means i do need to make it a bit harder um to create the other pathways yes yeah, so set yourself a new goal is it juggling you can juggle as i'm not too bad at juggling so as you juggle you can throw a ball over the top like this so it lands in your hand rather than mm. throw it diagonally across so now and again, you can throw in one of those yeah. or under the yeah. elbow. Lots of different juggling techniques yeah. I can show you, Stevie. Yeah, yeah. You, can, you can adapt your juggling, take on new goals, new strategies. Um, but just in setting yourself a goal and achieving it, you have every right to feel good about that. And people do it in so many different ways. Can they spend the next five minutes with their kids? Can they turn off their phone earlier so they have more quality time with their partner? Could they run to that next lamppost? Can people just set themselves manageable goals that will really help during this period especially yeah yeah I, th- I, f- I feel like that that really did help i think in in the sort of the the time frame of lockdown while we've been in it i think the first week was sort of a bit of a oh well we're not allowed to go into work we have to stay at home we've got to do different things and so sort we're of exploring experimenting with different types of exercise and getting out on the bike and stuff and that was quite nice for the, the first week. The second week I found was, right, okay, I need to sort of take a bit of a hold on this, if you if you, if you know what I mean. That was sort of my experience with it. So I went through the second week sort of like trying different things and trying sort of different routines. And the third week, I've sort of nailed that morning routine um, and, and, as I say, wrote them them goals out and then there's some other goals alongside um, the, the sort of concussion um specific ones so it's it's been really helpful for me um and 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 really helpful to to actually you know 
I guess I even I even had a bit of a celebration after I'd uh, I'd I'd managed to to get that because it's sort of when you're juggling it's sort of like how the hell do I release this this third ball again? But once you get it and then you actually start start tossing them in between, it was sort of a bit of a uh, a celebration and I did yeah, a bit of a shout. Good. It yeah. feels good, yeah, and you can adapt to that. I guess new skills, new durations, different shaped balls. <laughs> you can yeah. uh, you can you can adapt to that, and you can practice it. And I think that's a really good example that that uh, your listeners could have a think about how they could set themselves their, their own goals and targets. Yeah, um, I, and I'll actually I'd like to send you um, something I've been working on. Actually, I've, I think I think combining the the time. Um, of thinking that you get time to think a bit more time to think of this this lockdown um and the the morning pages and the journal at the night um it sort of allowed a bit of creative time for me i've been putting things together and connected things like i i like to do link things up i've got a bit of an idea that i'll send you um for, for what you for to have a look at alan um but something within that and it it, it, it costs it sort of um comes from my interest in um I guess I guess I've got a real massive interest in psychology um, and real massive interest in, in what you do, but also that I've got an interest in the sort of the crossovers between that and um, what would be I guess Eastern spirituality and and, and Buddhism and stuff. Um, and I was listening to a podcast yesterday. I didn't actually get to the to the answer. The 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 I think it was a psychiatrist practicing over in. New Jersey or New York, he was mentioning um, the role of ego. He was saying about the role of the ego and, and, and why we need it. But then there's a sort of a, a conflict in, in his, from his interest that he had before in Buddhism, before he went into learning psychology and, and practicing as a doctor and stuff, um, about them talking about dissolving the ego and, and, and this sort of stuff. So I... I, maybe I should have waited till I got the answer and, and, and listened to the rest of that before this podcast and I've had a bit more for you. Um, but I wonder what, what your take is on that and, and, and if that ever comes into your um, your sort of practice as, as a doctor and, um, you know, what, yeah, I'll take that, take that from there, Paul. Yeah, sure. So so we're getting quite Freudian now, aren't we? We're talking about uh, a lot of Freud's work, the unconscious mind and the consciousness. Um. When I'm applying that, I would probably try to simplify it a little bit. So, yeah, Freud talked about the ego and the id and the unconscious mind and consciousness. Uh, as my understanding of it is probably as deep as it needs to go for me to be able to explain it to people and work with people about it. So, yeah, I would often talk to people about their unconscious mind, their unconscious thoughts. comes into an awful lot of things. It uh, comes into uh, a lot of that. So our unconscious mind is kind of working in the background. Our subconscious, our unconscious is working in the background as we're processing and thinking. We just talked about it there with juggling. And that you have your cortex that gives you your conscious thoughts and memories. But the unconscious parts of your mind that work automatically give you automatic responses based on our ego, our self-image, or our self-beliefs. I would say this is important Sometimes I have to say, even as even as a psychiatrist, I find it overcomplicated. Right. Yes. I guess I I find some of these theories. Let's take Freud, the unconscious mind, uh, defense mechanisms. Uh, I find some of it really helpful. The way in which we uh, project our fears onto others, the way in which we identify with certain people or others, the way in which we defend ourselves from stress using a variety of approaches: humor, reflection, subjugation, etc. Um, 
some of Freud's stuff is I find a bit wacky. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> right. Cool. Um, Eastern philosophies I know less about. I wouldn't be closed to them, not at all. But again, I'd probably take the bits that I understand or the bits that I find helpful. So meditation, mindfulness, diaphragmatic breathing. I find a really helpful tool in helping people with anxiety. Yeah. I'd be able to say diaphragmatic breathing or belly breathing, helping people to settle themselves physiologically to slow their heart rate, their breathing, but also psychologically to help them to clear their mind and clear their thoughts to focus on one aspect of their breathing, such as their diaphragm. So I find that really helpful. Um, I know less about chakras and yings and yangs, um, and I probably apply those less because I maybe I understand them less. Um, but I, yeah, I would say I try and take the parts of each of these theories and practices that I find helpful, and and I try and apply them. And yeah, a big part of my job in sports, I guess, is to take theory and apply it to practice. So Freud wasn't thinking about the Leeds Rhinos when he was uh, sat in his clinic in Vienna. Are you sure? Uh, I don't think so. I'm not sure. I haven't asked him, but I don't think so. Yeah. Um, so I need to, so, but I need to be able to apply that practically. So I'm a bit of a practicing practicing clinician, really. I need to take a theory, but more importantly, I need to be able to apply it and translate it and then communicate it to a variety of different people who are working at different levels. I suppose I'd probably try and focus on the translation of it rather than being too theoretical. That makes sense. Yeah. Was Freud a practicing did he practice yes. as well? Did he? Yeah. Yes, he did. Yeah, very much so. He had his couch, yeah. and uh, and he saw a lot of people. I, I think you're probably aware. So Freud had lots of different approaches that we, uh, some of which we can use nowadays. The understanding the unconscious mind, psychoanalysis. Uh, my understanding is that Freud did quite a bit of experimentation with with drugs right. and with uh, with hallucinogenic drugs and other drugs that, of course, are now illegal and probably not advisable. <laughs> and so. Um, yeah. And so there's some of his approaches that I would definitely use and some which I'm not sure are a great idea. Right. Okay. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's good. Cool. <laughs> That's good. Cool. Um, and Carl, does Carl Jung come into it as well? Is yeah. It, is he, are they a sort of similar area? area? I, I think Jung came after Freud but lent yeah. a lot on his work and then went on to develop his own theories. There, there, there's a chap called Winnicott that did a lot about a good enough, good enough parenting a good enough, got it. Good enough mothering, so being good enough as a parent, not aiming for perfectionism. Uh, there are lots of theories about attachment that are really important. How we attach, how we form relationships with our parents, are really important. That's like a blueprint for our future life. So there might be things that we all think and feel and, be, and believe that are based on the role models of our parents, or based on the blueprint that we had from our parents. As we watch our parents' relationship, we might initially have a blueprint of that's how. That's how uh, adults relate to each other. And that could be helpful or unhelpful, depending on your parents. And so um, there's a lot about attachment theory that's relevant, lots about child development that's relevant for ourselves as adults. A lot of conditions that I see, I see a lot of athletes with ADHD, which is a condition that starts in childhood. So a lot of these theories are really relevant. But again, I would say my job is to probably translate the theory rather than be a professor of psychoanalysis mm, that's true that's true and i'm just bringing it back to the situation that we're in now alan um i guess to, to sort of round it off what do you think some of the challenges will be going forward um i don't know if you've if you've had any thoughts into that about you know it might be just managing the situation as we are now and um but is there going to be a, a scenario or, or a, a moment to to bridge what's going on now to going back into to normal life 
when and where where that may happen. Um, could you could you spell out any any challenges that you think that might happen in that? Yeah. Okay. So I would say uncertainty is a big part of that. There's definitely a lot of uncertainty. Um, I'm afraid there's uncertainty about when uh, 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 our rates of illness and of mortality will reduce, um, when therefore will lockdown end and how, um, when will a vaccine be found, um, do we develop immunity to this virus in the same way we develop immunity to other viruses. So there's a lot of uncertainty. And I would say that learning to tolerate and accept a certain degree of uncertainty might be a long-term, a good long-term strategy. So something like accept and control of controllables, the model that I mentioned earlier about letting out your feelings, accepting how you feel, the first wave of feelings, and working out what you can and can't control. Then there's probably going to be, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I would imagine that there's a certain amount of uncertainty about how we come out of lockdown and whether or not we come out of lockdown and then go back into a certain amount of social distancing and whether we continue to do that um, until a vaccine's found. So there's a certain amount of uncertainty there. This could be a long-term process. This could be measured in months rather than in weeks. And it's because of that that some of the real basics of good mental health are even more important at this time. So we've talked about sleeping. We've talked about diet and nutrition. We've talked about connecting, socially connecting. We're social animals. We've talked about self-esteem, self-esteem house, basing your self-esteem on more than one aspect, not just an athlete, not just being a teacher. Or doctor, but being a good neighbor, son, father, husband, daughter. We've talked a bit about lifeline, so we briefly touched on that. Understanding the previous dips that you've had, what you learned from those dips, what you learned from that adversity. How have you turned the corner before? I can talk about resilience theories, plenty of resilience theories. Often the person had a lot of resilience way before they met me. You know, they, they had an ability to, to recover from adversity in the past. So now might be a good time to work out how did you get over that previous difficulty, that missed exam or relationship that ended or that bereavement? And what did you learn from that period that you can apply now? Yeah. It's be a long-term process rather than rather than a short-term process. Perhaps that might be something that I'm seeing another 10 minutes from you, Alan, but that might be another um, something that we could just round up on. I know you're talking about resilience model or something, things that, that go into to resilience and now you can break that down. Would you be able to just... just um, go through that for us now? Of course I can. Yeah, very happy to. So I would start with the resilience that you, that you naturally have. I would tell you that you recovered from lots of previous dips. And if people know your story, they know about previous grand finals, your physical health, your mental health, your concussion. You've been through lots of adversity before, and each time you've bounced back and you've returned. And so there's no reason to believe that you won't get through this period of coronavirus. And that would apply to your that apply to people listening who are teachers with Ofsted inspections or doctors with CQC visits or people that have been through complicated relationships. People who, you, we've all survived those before. And so what learning can you take from that? I would start with getting a person to think about what they did themselves and what others provided for them to help them to recover from that previous dip. So I get people to draw a line graph of their life and to analyze the dips. I would then add in a bit of theory. There's lots of different theories of resilience, but I think some of the best by David Fletcher and Mustafa Saka, who are two psychologists from Loughborough. And if people were to Google um, resilience, Fletcher and Saka, F-L-E-T-C-H-E-R and S-A-R-K-A-R, 2012, they'll get a really interesting paper, which is about resilience in Olympians, in people who, uh, in Olympic champions, people who uh, uh, won gold medals. 
there was a study called a grounded theory of resilience, which looked into the factors that helped these people to come back from previous dips and to achieve great things. And in a nutshell, this boils down resilience into five things, uh, positivity, motivation, focus, self-confidence, and perceived social support. So our ability to be positive and optimistic, um, to feel motivated, to have a wish to do something, to be focused, to be able to focus on objectives, to feel self-confident and have a belief in ourselves. And perceived social support is the ability to recognize the support that other people give you and to be grateful for the support that you have. People that have those five traits are more resilient than people that have less of those five traits. And when the next challenge comes along, they appraise those challenges. They think about the challenges in a different way. They might see it as more of an opportunity than a threat. So we can all look at those factors. Your listeners could score themselves across those five traits. Give yourself a score out of 10 for your positivity, motivation, focus, self-confidence, and perceived social support. How much do you recognize the support that you get? Where you have areas that could be strengthened, we have areas that are not so high, where your scores are low, can you work on that? Can you work on your positivity? Can you work on your gratitude, the support that you have? So I find that the studies by Fletcher and Sark are really interesting. They've looked at individual resilience and team resilience, and they've really boiled it down to these five key factors that are worth us all focusing on, particularly at this time. Could, could we run through just quickly those those five about um, those or those few things that we could actually say practically what people could do? So for positivity, I know that, you, you know, the, the journaling or writing down three points, the best points uh, of the day at the end of the day works for me. Um, it keeps you that reticular activating system, um, looking for the good stuff and, and, and highlighting the good stuff. Um, so that's the positivity in it. That's a practical thing. Um, yes. And then on to the next one was... Yeah, so positivity, certainly reflecting on what you're doing well. So yeah. I have an exercise called Daily Positive Thought, where once a day a person writes down one good thing they've done, why is that good, and what does it tell us about them? So the third column starts with I am. So um, um, I've uh, made my wife a cup of tea. Why is that good? She likes tea. Um, what does that tell me about me? I'm a decent husband. And so people can reflect on their positives. Motivation and focus go hand in hand together. So motivation, I think of as the energy to want to commit to something, and focus is the ability to channel that energy in a particular direction. So we've talked about start with why, which is an interesting concept, isn't it? Why are you motivated? Why are your listeners motivated to self-isolate, to go through this difficult, challenging time? If you can refine your why, that might help with your motivation and your focus to do that by making a person feel they have autonomy, that they're choosing to isolate rather than it's being forced upon them. Yeah, self-confidence is really important. So we talked about self-esteem, self-esteem foundations, finding more than one source of feeling good about yourself, finding areas of your life that are important to you. So for me, it's being a doctor and a husband and a dad and a son, maybe a neighbor, and working out how can I make progress in each of those areas. Perceived social support, I have a really good measure of something that I really enjoy doing with people. So I call this a support audit. So I get people to make a table of their supports, and the columns are uh, what, sorry, columns are who, uh, what, how and when, and why. So if we go through one of your supports, maybe would you suggest someone who's supportive to you in the who column, who would you put down? Um, say my sister, for this instance. Okay. Yeah. So your sister is a supportive person. In the next column is, is what. So we ask, what does your sister support you with? What sorts of things can you go to her for? Um, yeah, connect with her a lot. Connect with her probably, um, you know, once every two days, I think. And we're obviously trading 
stories and, and stuff for what we're going through on in the day and obviously she's got a bit of adversity and dealing with a bit so can lend her a bit of support um, and she'll help me with, with I guess yeah my challenges too and speak to me about my challenges very good. So there'll be lots of things in, in terms of the what column you talk to your sister about uh, your own challenges. It could be relationships. It could be housing. It could be finance. Whatever you talk to your sister about. And you've also covered how and when. So you chat to her. Maybe you FaceTime. You catch up on the family WhatsApp group. And then finally, in terms of why, there'll be things that your sister gives you uh, in terms of your friendship, your connection that's unique to your relationship. Maybe she's a great listener. Maybe she really cares about you. Maybe she has a lot to add. Sounds like she works for the NHS, your sister. Sure, she works in, in she care. Does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's yeah, doctor down in, in London, Kingston Hospital Fantastic. now. Yeah. Good her, well, good for her. She's okay. But she'll she'll have her own um thoughts and experience. And sounds like there's there's a reciprocity to it. You help her, she helps you, you help each other. And that's part of the why about why your sister is a good support for you. If you were to develop that with other lines, uh, your partner, your parents, your friends, your teammates, uh, firstly you then create a menu of options. You basically have like a telephone directory of people who you can talk to about different things. I talked to Cuthbo about uh, set pieces and I talked to the coach about this and I talked to my sister about that. You have a menu of options. We're also, we increased your perceived social support just by writing it out. We really nudge you, we force you into being grateful for the support that you have. You, As you talked about your sister there, it was a very warm sort of conversation. You obviously care a lot about her and you really appreciate her and I'm sure she appreciates you. And so just by writing this out, you're building your perceived social support. You're recognizing more and being more grateful for the supports that you have. And that's a really big part of resilience. Cool. I like it. I think we've got quite a bit to offer people to to help Alan in, in this situation, this unprecedented situation. It has certainly increased people's, um, well, or decrease people's uncertainty and how they can manage it. And, and I really, really appreciate you spending some time out of your busy day and, and giving some mentality listeners some some things to get their teeth into them. And also me as well. Um, very, very helpful. Really, really appreciate having you on there. It's my pleasure. Lovely to talk to you as always and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Remember guys, head over to mentalitymagazine.com forward slash coronavirus. You can get the models to work through there for this period and going forward too if you have a dip. I cannot stress how much this is worth in monetary value, but also for what you can get from your own life too going forward. A lot of how we succeed in life is bending perspective, realising what you've got and what you've got to fight for. It's also knowing what you can look forward to and knowing what you can actually control. It stops a lot of the aimless mind wandering that I'm sure is going on right now. Please share this to family and friends and anyone that you think will help in this time. I really appreciate your time, guys, listening to the Mentality Podcast. Please take a look at what we're doing too. You can go over to mentalityapparel.com and see some of the stuff of how we can carry the message forward. And if you ever want to support us, go over to patreon.com forward slash mentality. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash mentality you can support us in any capacity there but also you can join the mentality club and really get involved and get amongst it and go towards making change cheers guys see you on the next one